Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to open them to Isaiah chapter 60. This Christmas season here at Westgate, we've been looking through, studying through the book of Isaiah. It's a book about a specific point in history, some 2,700 years ago, but God uses that moment in history, that moment in time, to tell an eternal story, one that concerns you and me and every person who has ever lived. Even though millennia have passed and the world looks a lot different since Isaiah was written, the truths about God that are revealed in this book and the truths about humanity that are revealed in this book remain the same. Isaiah is essentially a book about God's relationship with his people, about the utter darkness of their sin and his willingness to love them in spite of themselves. Let's pray this evening as we begin our time together looking at this beautiful book on Christmas Eve. God, we pray that you would be with us tonight, that as we come together to sing your praise to come before you in prayer and to open your word, that you would dwell with us, that you would draw us near to yourself, and that you would remind us of the reason we have to celebrate this Christmas and every day. Be with us tonight as we open your word and speak to us in it and through it. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Isaiah began, as we saw in chapter 1, with a devastatingly honest assessment of the situation that these people were in. They were the people of God, but looking at them, you wouldn't know it. They had been called by God to be his favored nation, the people of his covenant, and the tool in his hand which he would use to bring blessing to every nation on the globe. Yet by the time Isaiah is writing this book, things have fallen apart completely. The people have abandoned their relationship with God, they have forsaken the law, they have corrupted the temple, and they have begun to worship idols. They have scorned their neighbors. They have abused their privileged access to God and pridefully assumed that they are beyond reproach. So in chapter 1, God speaks to them about the state of things. He says, Children I have reared up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God calls these people his own children from the outset, so his love for them is evident from the start, but they have turned from him. He compares them to an ox and a donkey, which was not a compliment back then any more than it would be today. But the ox and the donkey are at least smart enough to know who takes care of them and who feeds them, who protects them, but God's people do not. They've forgotten and abandoned the one who has cared for them. And now they have run headlong into sin and rebellion and wickedness. And even the fact that they are God's people, his own children, will not stop him from bringing justice to wickedness and evil. So he says right here, at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, that they will be struck down. Their land will lie desolate, he says in verse 7. Their cities will be burned with fire, and foreign powers will devour their land. Their nation will fall. They will see their enemies rise and will feel the terror of knowing that the instrument of God's justice will be swift and it will be brutal. And in the end, their entire country will be laid waste. 
And soon they will be hauled away as captives to serve as slaves among nations that God has raised up to carry out his judgment. It is not a pretty sight. It is a dreadful oath from Israel's sovereign God. Yet even as God says that his justice is coming, that he will answer the wickedness of this people, he utters to them a word of hope. There will come a day when he will bring his people home, when their warfare will be ended and when they will live in peace and joy forever. He proclaims to them, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. It's a promise that changes everything. Because suddenly not all hope is lost for these people. God will make a way for them to be whole again, for them to have life and hope and joy again, for them to be restored and redeemed, and for them to be made righteous, as we will see in this book. And as we move a little further on into the book of Isaiah, we see exactly how God will do this. In chapter 9, we read that God will keep his promise through a person, a promised Savior, come to these people. Though they are living in a great and very deep darkness, a light will break through. The child of promise will come to them in their need. He will be a king, the one who will bring God's kingdom to earth and who will rule over it forever. As a king, he will bring his people out of captivity and back to their home, and he will rule as previous kings had not, with justice and fidelity to God's covenant. He will do these things because the king who is coming, this king who is promised, is divine. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh and make straight a highway for our God. Somehow, the one who is coming is God himself and is also being sent by God himself. A little later on in chapter 40, we hear that the coming of this king is eminent. God instructs his people to prepare for his arrival. Just as ancient kings were welcomed with magnificent processions and celebrations and fanfare, the arrival of this king will be striking, not only because the king himself will be glorious, but also because his coming will be a comfort, a true comfort to God's people. His arrival will be the answer to their fear and everything that they dread. So they are told to make straight a highway, to fill in valleys, and to level mountains in order to speed his approach. God wants them to be prepared for the one that he is sending, the one who will carry out all of his promises to rescue and redeem them. It's such a wonderful promise that it must have absolutely been difficult for them to, to believe it. After all, God has made very clear so far in this book, in the book of Isaiah and all over Scripture, that he will not allow sin and rebellion against his holiness to go unpunished. He is the one who is so manifestly holy that their sin has brought his judgment upon them. They know, and he has made clear, that he demands righteousness and holiness from his people, that his covenant with them expected and demanded their faithfulness to him. As they read these words in Isaiah, they are far from home. The promise from chapter 1 has come true already. Their nation has fallen. God has cast them out of the land that he had given to their ancestors, and 
God has told them over and over and over again through this prophet Isaiah that what they ought to fear most is not invading armies or famines or any other earthly circumstances, but it is God himself who in holiness never allows evil to go unanswered. And they know that they are still the same people, still stained with sin, living day by day with corrupted hearts, unable to keep God's law. They still stood guilty before their holy God. Yet, He has promised to bless and restore them through the work of the King that He is sending to rescue them. For Isaiah's ancient readers, and for everyone reading the book of Isaiah, this is a paradox. How? How could God, who always judges sin, promise to withhold His wrath and His justice from them, a sinful and wayward people? It's a question that lingers until chapter 52, and we discover that the king that God is sending is also His suffering servant, the one who will be pierced for the iniquity and transgression and sin of these people. He will be their substitute, who will stand in their place to receive God's judgment on their behalf. He is the king who gives his life for his subjects. And by his affliction, they will be healed. God's judgment will be satisfied, and his love will be poured out because of the willingness of this king of kings to become the servant of all, even giving his life to save theirs. At the very same time, right here in the book of Isaiah, we see two things about God that are equally true, which Paul describes in Romans 11 when he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. God ruthlessly answers sin. There is no way around that truth, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us. But God also directs that wrath to a substitute, his own servant king, the one who is God and has been sent by God himself. It is a mercy received by faith alone because this servant king does what these people could not do for themselves. And so, as we move into the final pages of this book, God's people have a reason to truly rejoice. God has commissioned Isaiah as a prophet, called him to be the herald of this message during the nation's worst moment. When they had abandoned God and worshipped idols and pursued corruption and wickedness as an entire nation. Now, as they read these words, their situation has gone from bad to much, much worse. And they are held captive as slaves in a land that is far from their home. It is the very darkest hour in their history when God's judgment had pushed them to the brink of utter annihilation. When it seemed that they would never see the light of day ever again because the pit of their despair was far too deep. In that moment, this very moment, God tells them that he will deliver them, atone for them, he will redeem them and restore them. He will bring them home. He will give them life and provide for their need, if only they will look to him in faith. And so we read in chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Into the depth of darkness, a spark of light has come, and it is the glory of God himself. He has come to his people in their 
He is the hope of His people, the King who comes to them over high mountains and across low valleys, the comfort to His war-torn people, the suffering servant who gives His own life to save theirs. God Himself has come. Chapter 60 is full of God's promises to His people, promises of abundance, of peace, of freedom and safety, and they culminate where we pick up in verse 19. The sun, we read, shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. In the darkness of their captivity, God has come to his people, and he himself will be their daylight. This year, lots of people have gotten excited about a rare astronomical event that is taking place, I guess, right now, probably outside right now. Evidently, for the first time since like the 1600s, Jupiter and Saturn are aligned in such a way uh, that they become the brightest star in the nighttime sky. On a clear night, they look pretty impressive next to all the other stars. They are the brightest thing around. But that all changes when the sun rises. Even before the sun actually peaks over the horizon, the stars fade from view completely because their brightness simply can't compete. The blazing light of the sun makes even the once-in-a-millennia light from Jupiter and Saturn's alignment seem utterly insignificant. That's the idea here in Isaiah 60. From their point of view, these people's point of view, surrounded by the darkness of captivity and God's judgment, a glimmer of light from a distant star would look impressive. But God has greater things in store than that, except that now it is the sun itself which can't compete. God himself will be the light under which these people live. And what they thought was brilliant before will suddenly seem to them utterly insignificant. And further than that, it will never be lost. We read in verse 20, the people, that they will never dwell again in darkness. Your, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning shall be ended. It's a promise for all time. For eternity to come. Never again will they be cast out of the light of his presence. Never will they mourn again because your people shall be made righteous, we read in verse 21. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. This is a work that God will do. He will do what they could not. He will make them righteous. They will be the work of his mighty and gracious hands, established forever in the, in the home that he has appointed for them. And all this in order that God might be glorified. Because the God of Scripture reveals that at his heart he is love and joy and holiness and righteousness. So in making people the objects of his love, in making them people of joy, in causing them to be holy and righteous, he reveals his own character. He reveals his own glory. He is the God who saves. God will do this. The least one shall become a clan, we read, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. From under the boot of Babylonian captors, God will establish his people as a mighty nation, never to be oppressed again. It's a promise sealed with God's covenant name, Yahweh, the assurance of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, as my one-year-old's Bible likes to describe it. 
The book of Isaiah is a snapshot of a moment in redemptive history when God spoke to his people in their deepest need, when his justice was poured out on them and they were cast into darkness. In that moment, he came to them with a promise. And when they were restored to their home, when they were back in Jerusalem, given freedom from captivity, they trusted that God would continue to shine on them. But the promises of Isaiah... This beautiful book went beyond simply being set free from a foreign empire. And as the people lived out their days in Jerusalem, they lived with a longing for God to keep his covenant and to do all that he had said he would do. But for the next 400 years, there was silence, nothing, no word from God. We might miss that as we're reading through our Bibles this next year because it's not obvious right away. The people came home, reestablished themselves in the land, and then four centuries passed with no prophetic word, no divine announcement, nothing at all. And the people waited. Those people who trusted God were eagerly looking for a sign that he had come to hasten his promise in his promise-keeping mission to set all things right, to make his people righteous, and to deliver them from this world of death once and for all. They waited. For four centuries, they waited. And then, on a quiet night in a town called Bethlehem, a miracle happened. A young couple engaged to be married arrived in David's city. They had come from far, yet there was no room for the inn, no room for them in the inn, so they were given a room in the barn. The young woman was a virgin, yet was somehow pregnant, exactly as had been predicted 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. And while they were in Bethlehem, her son was born. The light of the world was coming into the world. The king of kings, the comforter of God's people, the servant of God who would atone for their sin, the one who himself would be the light brighter than the midday sun, under whom the people of God would be made righteous and live in peace for all time. And for the first time in four centuries, God spoke, but now it came to these people in the cry of a helpless baby, the fullness of God wrapped in frail humanity. God had come, truly come to his people in their need to satisfy his justice and pour out his love for all who would look to him in faith. For Isaiah, and for everyone who read this book, it was a promise to long for, a hope of something yet unseen. It was the future glory of God, something yet to be revealed as he fulfilled his covenant with them. But for us, it is a promise kept and a longing satisfied. God has come to dwell among his people. We celebrate this night because just as he assured his people in exile that he would, he came into the utter darkness of their lives to bring a never-fading light of glory. Like the ancient readers of this book, we need the hope that Christmas represents. They lived in oppression and fear, addicted to sin and living under the wrath and justice of God, as we do. Our fears might look different, but at their root, they are the same. Fear of death and loneliness and injustice and pain and uncertainty plague our days and our nights, just as they have for people throughout history. And at Christmas... God's work to set all things right has begun in the birth of his son, what we call the incarnation. God has come to us in our need to bring us out, to redeem us by suffering in our place, 
and to restore us by making us righteous. This is our hope. And everything we cling to and everything that gives us lasting joy, and it comes to us as a baby laid down to rest in a manger. We rejoice tonight because all our longings have been answered. The hopes and fears of all of our years have been met in Jesus Christ's birth. He is our great joy, our great hope, and the glory of God come to us in our deepest need. He is the keeping of all of God's promises to save those who look to him in faith. And in him, a light shines on us that is so brilliant that it makes the sun itself look utterly insignificant. He is the one sent by God who is God himself. He is the one who is the king of kings and yet is somehow also the suffering servant. He is the comfort of all of God's people who receive him by faith and we celebrate his arrival this Christmas and every day. Would you pray with me? Lord, we rejoice tonight in remembering the birth of your Son, who is our Savior. What humility we see in Christ, who steps out of glory to take on flesh, who dwelt among his people and subjected himself to die at their hands, at our hands. He descended into darkness in order to bring us into light, and we put our trust in this gospel today and every day. Lord, be with us, and by your Spirit, make us people of faith and joy and recipients of your grace. Shine the light of your glory into our lives this joyful Christmas. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.